0: you've got your Bible with you this morning, you can turn to Luke chapter 22 where we just heard the gospel read. My name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Incarnation. It's wonderful to be up here on this uh, final week of this small oh, mini series that we've been doing this summer um, on uh, Come to the Table, so meals through the Bible. And today we're going to look at this connection between um, between some events that happened in the Old Testament and the Lord's Supper. It's interesting to think that text that we heard read from Exodus, of the Israelites being trapped against the Red Sea and the pursuing Egyptian forces in mass, chasing them, and that the food in their stomachs, the, the food that was sustaining them and strengthening them for that journey, whatever was going to happen next, uh, whether they died there on the seashore or whether something happened that would enable them to get through across the Red Sea or somehow they couldn't escape. Um, but the food that was in their stomach was that lamb and that unleavened bread and those bitter herbs that God had prepared for them and, and prescribed for them um, just prior So today we're going to look at the Lord's Supper, a new Passover for a new Exodus and a new covenant. For those of you taking notes, that's the title. And also it'll keep Beth from emailing me tomorrow to ask me what the title of the sermon was, which I never know. And so I've got to think about one and whatever. So there it is, Beth. (laughs) To set this up, let's consider a couple of things that are common to all of us. One is um, wedding cake. You know, all of us have probably been to weddings, and we love, probably most of us love cake. Um, and at weddings, the cake is good, right? I mean, it's not just a cheap, quick cake um, that you get on the, on the aisle at Food Lion. It's usually really good cake. And if you had a 10-year-old with you or a foreign exchange student from, uh, from a culture that doesn't have wedding cake, how would you explain wedding cake? to that person? Um, probably you wouldn't start with the metaphysics of cake. Well, you've got to sift the flour three times to get it really fine, and then, and then you fold the eggs in really slowly. I don't know how to make cake. I'm just kind of riffing here, but <laughs> sounds good, right? Um, you would probably say this cake, even if this is a very poor family that's hosting this wedding, everyone can afford to make a cake. You don't have to feed everybody. You don't have to have an extravagant reception, a big feast. It's nice if that happens, but it doesn't have to happen. At least there's going to be a cake. And who eats the cake first? The bride and the groom, right? And, and before it, things got funny and, and quirky and we've got to put funny things on social media all the time people actually took care to feed each other the cake. They weren't stuffing it all over each other's faces. It was was a, a picture of how I'm going to nurture you, that we are now a family, and I'm going to take care of you, and you're going to take care of me. And everyone who is gathered at that wedding is going to have a piece of cake from the same cake, that we are now this extended group that's going to, participate in this new family and support them and help nourish them and celebrate with them. That's probably how you would attempt to explain it to a 10-year-old. You wouldn't just say, well, I don't know, cake is good and we're all kind of hungry and we're going to eat some cake because it's good. You would explain it that way to a two-year-old. Another way to think about what we're going to talk about today is Independence Day, the 4th of July. We just had it. A few weeks ago, I was um, in Harrisonburg that week um, because Aubrey and Janelle were um, on pilgrimage in, in Israel, so I got to hang out at their house for a little while with some of their kids, and some of my kids joined us, um, and we just got to walk right out on the street and see these fireworks. And every time I see this, it gets to me I don 't know if that's how it is for you. Um, but it's not just kind of like, "Oh, that's cool, pretty colorful, loud it's something that we're doing on the 4th of July in remembrance of something else. Um, We're celebrating the 4th of July in in remembrance of the costly birth and the lasting endurance of our country. And whether we arrived here recently or generations ago, fireworks remind us of what it cost to win a real victory of freedom in order to be able to write um, or to enact a, a declaration of independence and make it so, um, a different kind of constitution, a celebration of a place where so many have found political asylum and refuge from religious persecution and hope for a brighter future for themselves and for their families for generations to come. So as we celebrate the 4th of July, as we see these fireworks, it's not just a, a light show Right? It's something deeper. We're doing this in remembrance of something else. And as we celebrate this, um, we're all gathered up together and we're all brought to a place of belonging and identifying. Again, whether we arrived three weeks ago or 200 years ago, we're all in that moment as we're observing this, as we're gathered up together in this together, um, all of us, We're all equally as American as George Washington or um, Betsy Lee Roth or Martin Luther King or my third favorite Jewish American, Paul Simon. (laughs) My wife is Jewish and her dad, I think they should have first and second. But Paul Simon wrote American tunes, so it works, right? the language of the Declaration of Independence and and its subsequent efficacy of the Revolutionary War, they gather us all up together and carry us through to a new identity and and a a common um, identity. There's a theologian, Anglican priest named Matthew Colvin, and he wrote this, If we want to understand how the Lord's Supper works how Jesus intended to use it to illustrate this new covenant and then to regularly gather us back up into union with his life, death and resurrection and reign and our future resurrection and reign with him, then we should look first to the Passover of the Old Testament, not Aristotelian talk about substances. We don't use metaphysics or Jewish liturgy. Uh, We don't use metaphysics to explain, I'm sorry, um, a wedding cake. So let's start there, and I want to just say at the outset, this is just another way to think about the Holy Communion that we celebrate every week, the Lord's Supper. It's not the only way, but I hope that looking at it through this lens of the Passover will be encouraging. It's not opposed to other ideas or conversations or discussions about real presence or anything like that, but, but I believe this is the primary way that we should look at it, um, through the story of Scripture. Scripture. So what is the Jewish Passover? Historically, and we're just bear with me just for a moment while I frame this for those of you who are unfamiliar. The Passover in the Old Testament was a meal that was instituted by God to seal his people to himself and to seal them together as a people right before he stretched out his mighty arm to gather them to himself and deliver them from the jaws of death and the hand of slavery. So, the first Passover was like the eve of the Exodus. Um, and so who's with me, right? If, if you participate in this meal and you put this blood on the lintels of your house and, you know, go through all these things and have this meal standing up, eaten in haste, because we're about to move out, um, the, the Passover and the Exodus, you, you, they, they go right together. You can't take them apart. Um, they go hand in hand. And, and then the Sinai Covenant, the, the Old Covenant, comes right after that. So by the time we get to Exodus 12, the Egyptians in Israel, um, uh, the, the, the Egyptians had Israel in a death grip. And they'd had Israel in this death grip for 400 years. And, and it just kept getting worse as we approach this uh, moment in the Scriptures. And then finally, God intervenes. And in the days of Moses and Aaron, God has been turning up the temperature on Egypt with these first nine plagues, and, and th- those first nine plagues failed to leave any kind of lasting impact on Pharaoh. He'd kind of change his mind, and ooh, frogs are terrible, okay, you guys can leave. And then he would wake up in the morning and, and say, no, never mind, you can't leave. And so God, th- this had gone on for nine times, and finally God is going to use um, the nuclear options, so to speak, and finally break Pharaoh's will and set his people free through a t- terrible plague. Um, but before that, he institutes this, um, this supper. So all this buildup of power between Yahweh, um, who's entered the scene, and Pharaoh, who's digging in his heels, it's about to explode. And it's going to explode tonight. And in the coming days, Yahweh will win a decisive and irreversible uh, victory against Egypt, taking his bride by the hand and leading her to peace and rest, setting her free to worship him. He will be their God and they will be his people. But first, this thing has to go down. And to mark it, um, to, to, to punctuate it, there's this meal that he institutes. So on that night in Egypt, the eve of this pivot point of God's saving work, he institutes the first Passover meal. And it consisted of several different things. Um, four cups of wine shared by everyone um, or, or poured for everyone, so that there's this whole liturgy around it. So you've got several cups of wine throughout the meal that are um, served at specific times, and there's unleavened bread, and there's an unblemished lamb that's butchered with no bones broken, and there are specific prayers, blessings offered throughout the meal to kind of identify different aspects of Israel's story and uh, like their time in Egypt and their hope for a Messiah, things like that, their hope for deliverance. And now even as it's celebrated today, this messianic hope is a key part of it. There's another cup of wine that no one touches. That's this fifth cup um, that's reserved for Elijah when he comes back and the Messiah so Elijah's gonna come back and he's gonna partake of this meal and point us to the, the Messiah or himself be the Messiah. But back in Egypt in the days following that first strange Passover feast, God is poised to completely overhaul Israel's identity. Think about it. They one night you're sleeping in your bed in Egypt, and the next night you're trapped at the bank of the Red Sea. So, so in, in just a couple of days, in, 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 in just a, a few hours, these people go from being trapped by a ruthless Pharaoh to set free to belong to the creator king. These people go from being trapped in darkness to brought into light, from being far off, to being brought near, from languishing in Egypt for 400 years as orphans. Who knows about us? Who cares about us? Who can hear us? Well, we cry out that another one of our kids just got thrown into the Nile River. Who can hear us? So they go from all this history of languishing as abused orphans, to being God's prized possession and nestled in his hand. If you heard that from the Exodus reading, as Jesus is or God is taking them through the Red Sea, they're enveloped in this cloud of his glory that obscures them from the enemy. It's like when Jesus says that, that I've got you in my hand and no one can snatch you out, like God's powerful hand is closed in around them and he's brought them together and he's going to carry them through. So in a night... It goes from no one can hear us, no one cares, to all of a sudden, God is for us. Who can be against us? They go from death. Think about that night that they spent on the bank of the Red Sea. It didn't part like um, electric doors at Target, like as they walked up to it, right? Um, They got there and they were stuck. And you can imagine like the hoofbeats and the chariot wheels and the clattering scabbards as the, and the cloud of dust, the dust cloud of imminent death, slaughter is getting closer and closer and closer and they have to camp there. Probably slept really well, right? <laughs> and then the next day, God commands Moses to stretch out his staff and then he parts the Red Sea. So they go from Death, no doubt, all of a sudden to this miraculous life as the Red Sea is torn from one side to the other and they go across on dry land. So this Passover meal was in their bellies, strengthening them for that journey and that night. And then the Red Sea was torn in half, opening the way to God's eternal or God's promised peace and rest. So God commands Israel to prepare and partake of that Passover meal once a year for the rest of time. That's really important because we participate in this meal every week. So there's going to be a lot of things that we can connect here as we um, get to the, the, the next part of our discussion when we get to this part in Luke. But in this, as they partake, they will do this in remembrance of Yahweh. It's a memorial meal. They do this in remembrance that... That God is their redeemer. He is their victorious deliverer. He is the true and faithful king of his people. And he's bigger and badder than Pharaoh. And he's the king of all creation. He can rip a sea in half if he wants to do that for his people. But what does in remembrance mean? We're gonna spend a little bit of time here because it can be a stumbling block, especially when you get in, if you if you're if you if you want to geek out on um, Eucharistic theology, there's all kinds of discussion, and this word memorial meal can almost be like um, a bad word in some circles because it sounds like it's diminishing some um, a miracle that's happening, um, and and that's not the intention, and and I. I would want to avoid that pitfall. But I do want to talk about what remembrance means in a Jewish context, because it's very different than how it is in your context or my context. It's commanded by God here, um, instituting this annual Passover meal in perpetuity in remembrance of the Exodus events. And 15 years or 1500 years later, Christ, our Passover, he institutes a meal, um, a fulfilled Passover meal in remembrance of himself. Do this in remembrance of me. You can't get away from that. And he prepares as he prepares to lead us through a new exodus. All the meals that we've looked at a few weeks ago, when we looked at all these feasts that were um, instituted by God in the Old Testament, they're all memorial feasts. Um, And the 4th of July is a, a obviously a significant cheapening of that. But it's like a thing that we can relate to that 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 gets us close. Um, as we see those fireworks, if you're if you're a romantic like me, <laughs> it draws you in to like the conflict that that happened, right? Um, the Rocket's Red Glare is not just a pretty show. It's It's a conflict. It was a difficult conflict. It was a costly conflict. And here we all are on the same footing at the end of it. um, And continuing to improve on it. The Passover year in and year out, and for Christians often week in and week out, is in remembrance. And it does not mean um, remembering something that just happened. Like, oh yeah, I remember where I put my car key. Um, or or mental assent, like, oh, yeah, I I agree with that. I agree that Jesus died, and he was raised, and he's going to come again. It's not like another creed. It's something different. It's something more. Partaking of the Passover meal, partaking of the Lord's Supper, means that we are participating in the actual events, of the upper room and everything that followed in those next several days. There's these rabbinic writings, rabbinic writings that that are there that you can find. And there's one that's actually uh, associated with Gamaliel. I I don't know how to pronounce his name, but he's the guy that taught um, Saul of Tarsus. And that's a big name in the Jewish world. It'd be like if you were a wealth manager, financial planner, and you were like, yeah, I spent seven years studying with Warren Buffett, right? Um, Like, you probably know what you're talking about. So this guy says, um, these are teachings by Jewish teachers about the law. And this is an early one again. And it's still recited in Jewish Passover meals to this day. This is what he says. In every generation, every Jew who, who partakes of the Passover is duty-bound to regard his or herself as though he or she personally has passed out of Egypt. Duty-bound to regard yourself as though you personally have passed out of Egypt. You personally. That's what remembrance means in a Jewish context. That's the framework. It's not a mental ascent. It's not cognition. It's a complete embodiment. Um, and this is, again, a very Jewish thought. Back in the beginning in, in Exodus, we see the rest of the Bible set up as this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Right? Like, Jesus was in Eve as the seed of the woman. Levi, in, in Hebrews chapter 7, It says he paid Levi, the great-grandson of Abraham. Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. That was a meeting between Melchizedek and Abraham. But Levi paid tithes to him because Levi was in the loins of Abraham, his great-grandfather, when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. So in, in Jewish thought... Your identity is wrapped up in these lineages. And so to come to the Passover meal 1,500 years later, as Jesus did with those disciples, they are in Egypt. And they're taking this meal. And they're hoping, they're straining to see what's God going to do next. Can God do anything about this? And they are going through the Red Sea. They are. They're not remembering that it happened. They're doing it. So by partaking of this meal, their identity, their identity is my identity. So do this in remembrance means I actually participated in those specific saving acts of Yahweh. I was there. I was delivered from Egypt the same as they were. I was there set apart by God. I was there set free by God. I was there personally rescued to become God's own possession. Their exodus is my exodus. The new exodus, as we looked with messianic hope, will be my exodus. God will come again. And all of us, by his coming Messiah, will be brought together in him. Paul picks this language up and this idea up later um, when he talks about being in Christ. And he, he talks about him personally being crucified with Christ. And it's no longer he who lives. Or, or he talks about all of us. Um, once we were dead in our transgressions and sins and marionettes of the devil to do whatever he wanted in Ephesians chapter 2. But then God intervened, God intervened and raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places. By the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension. It's like pulling something up by a root ball that we're part of. All of us were brought up there together and made new creations to do the new works that God has prepared for us to do. So that's background. As we now turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, how does this relate to the Passover? I hope, if nothing else from that first bit, um, that, that you see that the Passover meal and the exodus, they go hand in hand. And, and And this new Passover meal that Jesus is instituting in that upper room and this new exodus that he's about to undertake on our behalf and this new covenant that he mentions, they go hand in hand as well. It's the next chapter. This is a fulfilling chapter of that same story. It's not like a brand new thing that Jesus cooks up out of nowhere, like a new kind of meal that he's introducing. It's 100% a Passover meal. So Jesus' celebration of this Passover and his institution of this new fulfilled Passover is amazing and pivotal. But it's not a brand new thing. This is a quote by N.T. Wright and then um, commented on by by another scholar. He says the Eucharist, this is a weird word. The Eucharist should be celebrated narratively, like according to the big narrative. It should be part of the story, embedded in the story. The Eucharist should be celebrated narratively. We need to understand that we are being inscribed into the story of the Messiah, his coming, his work, and his coming again. That is the crowning reality of the whole Jewish story. We must look at the Passover as a paradigm. How did Jesus understand this? How did his disciples in the upper room understand it? How did God's chosen people from the time of Moses in Egypt every year, leading to that Passover feast in a rented room, understand it? That is the great tradition we should look to first in order to frame our participation here week after week. The Lord's Supper is a new Passover prescribed, instituted by Jesus to seal his people to himself and to seal us together right before the new exodus and, and the inauguration of the new covenant. I, I don't know if you noticed, but when, um, when Eric read the gospel, and it's only 20 verses, but 13 times in those 20 verses we hear the word Passover or Feast of Unleavened Bread, which Paul... Uh, Luke doesn't separate those two things. The Feast of Unleavened Bread followed the Passover for a week. The night that the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed, that's the night of this meal. Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ, our Passover, who's going to be sacrificed for us. He's unambiguously inserting himself into this 1,500-year-long tradition of Passover meals that God commanded everyone to be familiar with and to pass on to their children and their children's children forever. Jesus is this lamb stepping into this meal and sharing this meal with his disciples. It's a Passover meal. And it's happening right before another exodus. And it's happening as the inception of a new covenant. So just as Jesus says, all of the scriptures point to me. Here we see evidence of this once again. It's a fulfilled Passover. In Luke chapter nine, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read this. It's the transfiguration and it's, it's uh, when Jesus goes up on this mountain and he sees essentially the whole of the law and the prophets represented by Moses and Elijah, and they're having a conference. Um, and it says, now about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance on his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses Moses. And Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which was about to, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And then when Moses and Elijah departed, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So in this new Passover, Jesus gathers the church all up together and carries us through his death and carries us through his burial, this exodus. He leads us into death, into burial, out of death, through the resurrection, the ascension, And he makes us these new creations to live and work and participate in his kingdom, all in his perfect rest and shalom that was promised. So similar, isn't it? Like the Israelites are dead and then they get to the river or the the sea and they're definitely dead. And and then the, the sea parts somehow and they go through and they're still alive. And and there's this glory cloud around them, like like the one that um, accompanied Jesus and his disciples on that mountain. And and they go through death and they come out on the other side alive and in the promised land. In the like we're 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 there. We're we're on dry ground and we're heading now to this promised land. It's just a few days journey that way. So these people, we are gathered up and carried through. So as we come to the Lord's table week after week, we celebrate a Passover meal. One that invites us to remember, but not just like where we remember our car keys, but calls us to be wrapped up in. To be gathered up by the power of God, which is absolutely present here to accomplish this. To, to, by his real presence, gather you up to himself and bind you to himself, the same way he did with that cloud around his people going through the Red Sea. To wrap you up in that and carry you from this Passover table to the Exodus that comes right after the cross, the empty cross. And not just the empty cross, the veil, not the sea, but the veil in the temple that was torn at that moment from top to bottom, saying, you can come all the way here. You can pull up a chair. And we have this face-to-face relationship through my spirit because I've caused you to stand in my presence, blameless with great joy through the blood of an unblemished lamb that was butchered with no bones broken and pierced for your transgressions and sprinkles you to cleanse your conscience and make you clean. So come. Come to the table. But the table doesn't stop here. The table is a Passover meal that leads us, that, that invites us to participate and be wrapped up again and again and again in these exodus events of Jesus' death and a torn veil and a resurrection and being seated with him in the heavenly places and made a new creation to do the good works that God prepared for you to do. Is the real presence of God here in that moment? Oh, absolutely it is. Is the spirit of God here testifying to the finished work and the glory of Christ? A hundred percent he is. Is this a Passover meal? Absolutely it is. And we do this in remembrance of him. It's that kind of memorial, that existential, whole identity memorial. Whereas you come here and take this meal, you're gathered up with the whole church. Young and old, sick and healthy, doubting and confident. So as we come in just a moment to celebrate this Passover meal, let's do so, not just coming as if there's a, some interaction that happens somehow just with this stuff, but, but to, to allow the real presence of God to gather us together through this meal, this stuff, this food, and bring us through here. I love how our, uh, our stained glass here represents this, the veil being torn from top to bottom, these colors of heaven and these colors of earth, that that through this Passover, we come not just to the cross, but through the torn veil where we get this access to God by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.